Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, hello, friends, and welcome back to what we are fondly, already fondly. See how that goes? We don't even have to let time pass. We can fondly look back on the episode we are about to record and call it part two of last episode, in which Tolstoy says the same things he said before (laughs) over again. (laughs) It's a short selection for today. Four chapters to end part two of volume four. Yes. Nailed it. That was hard for me to put together, but I did it. How are you ladies today? I have an important question for both of you. Mm. You ready for this? You have to choose right now off the top of your head and there will be a countdown. You both have to say the name at the same time. I'm going to count down five seconds and that's all you will get to choose. Okay. I'm nervous. You have to choose your, your favorite minor character from War and Peace in five, four, three, two, one. Go. Denise. Potato guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's everything I hoped for. Oh, it couldn't be better. All five of those seconds, you guys, I was trying to remember his name. Who I the hell is it. Potato Guy? <laughs> the guy who teaches Pierre how to love potatoes, you know? Oh, right. Oh, okay. 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 <laughs> but, uh, isn't it Pla- isn't it Platon or something? Pl- Platon. Yeah. Platon. No, you're right. Platon. Yep. Platon. Okay. All I could think All of right. was Plato, and I knew that wasn't it. <laughs> <laughs> and Emily, you said Denisov? Yeah, I love his uh, I love his speech impediment. I think that he is adorable. I loved the whole episode where he was courting Natasha, mm. and she said no. I still feel that bad about that for him. Yes. Yeah. Okay, Megan, why Potato Guy? He's no longer Platon. He's Potato Guy. No, he's Potato Guy. I yep, think forevermore. I love him because of his cheery disposition in such a dark scenario and his effect on everybody around him. I thought he was delightful and ridiculous. Kind of in a warm-hearted way. He's in the same category as Denisov in my mind of like our cheery, warm-hearted characters who like kind of boy up the atmosphere around them, you know? Mm. And I know that Platon is, you know, thematically significant and everything, but actually what I like about him is that he he improves those around him and improves their mood, you know? That's beautiful. I like it. I suppose I should be made to choose too. Yes. I'll take I'll take old Count Rostov. Oh, nice. Counts Don't as a minor you, character. I, I, it's interesting how his character deteriorate, deteriorated yes. from the beginning of the story. He yeah. was he was one of my favorites in the early stages, and then he just became a complete buffoon. Yeah, I think one of the reasons I kind of like it is I wonder, I wonder if Tolstoy is trying to represent sort of what happens to people as they mm. age. Um maybe their their warmest and best parts get warmer and bester but also their um they give less of a care about concealing their flaws and so the flaws get sharper also and he's a very very realistic character from yeah, my perspective yeah i think he is yeah and well drawn although i will say my first choice was potato guy and i had to um reach for another one i beat you to it sorry given that megan beat me to it were you going to call him potato guy though no i was going to call him platon all right um <laughs> But potato guy is clearly 
the best minor character there is. Sorry, Emily. Oh, shots fired! I'm oh, awesome. Fired. Oh, you just you're just saying that this was the competition and Megan won. I didn't yeah. tell you it was a competition, but yes, it was a competition and Megan won. Thanks. Okay, other question. This one's much harder, and if you guys think it's dumb, we can you can say I'm not answering that, and then Shad can either cut it or leave it in for comedic effect. Okay. The other question I have for you is, if you could rewrite with a different ending any of the scenes that we've read so far, what would it be? Ooh. That is super interesting. I have so many thoughts, actually. That I do, too. That's actually really fun. Whereas in the previous question, there were no thoughts, and I had to pull from the void. Now I have actually too many, I think. Wow. Do you need a countdown to help you? No. <laughs> no. This, I, like, I feel like this could be... This might actually be a completely episode. other complete episode, episode in which we tell the alternate history of One Piece. <laughs> Hold on a second. Taking that down in a note. Alternate Don't you think? History. I mean, first thing that comes to mind, obviously, is Andre's death. Uh, that was what came to mind for me. He would have reconciled himself to his son a little better. You know, maybe had some His son? Tender. How about Natasha? Well, also that. Or his sister. I mean, anyone in that room. They all deserved some tenderness. Try a little tenderness. <laughs> I was thinking it too. <laughs> I had a weird thought, actually. My, If I'm being honest about my first instinct, I think that I would change the ending of that strange scene in the Russian woods with Nikolai and Sonia. The weird mm. scene in the barn. Okay. I thought that whole, so. well, it felt like it was supposed to be like a, a parade of clowns almost. And I never did really understand its significance. So I would change the ending of that scene to make it more obvious what it was for or take it out. One of the two. Hmm. It felt like it was a really monumental scene. Yeah. Um, I think you I know what you mean. built up to it and then belabored it and then. Yes, but I didn't, I still couldn't tell you what the significance of it is. So it felt like a misstep, you know? Yep. Yeah, I mean... And We're then, talking about the mummers, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah. mummers, yes. It's such a big novel already, and it seems like Tolstoy just has so many threads running through it. Really, like, this is, like, four different novels that he could have developed better, or, like, more thoroughly. And I think Nikolai and Sonia's story is one of those. It's totally worthy of more attention and more Maybe detail. Maybe a novel? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, I hadn't there thought you go. about Another that. idea for a listener out there, write the Nikolai and Sonia story. Fan How fiction. it should have ended. <laughs> Fan fiction. Which, which classical composer was it? Was it? I can't remember if it was Mozart or Beethoven. It was one of the biggest names in classical music history. Was asked one time, why did you waste this melody on this interlude between movements of your symphony? And he says, oh, it's okay. I got more. Yeah, Tolstoy is like that for sure yeah. with, with storylines. You know, crazy. I will say, though, that the further we get towards the end of this novel, the more frequently he's coming back around to philosophy and is like leaving our characters for longer and longer. And he's um, I won't say he's losing me, but I will say I was frustrated <laughs> this time around. And I, I think for the counts. first time, I thought to myself, I can see why people read abridged versions of the classics, because if I were abridging War and Peace, I would take out. I, obviously, I would not because I understand its significance and it, you know, whatever. But if I were going to abridge this, it would t- it would come out so smoothly, don't you think? It, basically, you just take out the historical, ph- philosophical part, and that's a whole treatise and an essay on its own. It's almost a different art form, and the story of our characters would hold together just fine. You know, I actually read, and this is confession time. I read Moby Dick in college, and the professor abridged it. Really? He took out the cetology stuff? 
he did. He cut the cetology chapters and said, you guys, you don't have to read these. Wow. There is some symbolic significance to them, but I can sum it up for you in one well-told lecture, and I don't want to waste time talking through the whole thing. So skip that part. You can go back and read it later. Wow. You college know, professor. Hillsdale college professor. Yeah. Now might be a good time to remember something we talked about at the very, very beginning, which is like years ago at this point. <laughs> but we talked about the fact that... Is it years plural? Well, yeah. it's getting to be two. It's about a year and a half Lord at this point. Me, why did we ever undertake to do this? <laughs> I'm so glad we did. Oh, Let's just put We're that gonna, on the table. This is, <laughs> this is wonderful. I love it. We're going to have a party when it's done, yeah. but it has been wonderful. Okay. So we talked at the very, very beginning about how Tolstoy did not conceive of this as a novel proper that he saw himself as writing in a genre that was as yet undefined, um, whether that be like epic or um, it's, it's, I mean, there's in his own words. I th- I'm not I, and sure. I, think is, I have no trouble. Yeah, saying saying I just, yeah, me neither. Right. I'm laughing at the fact that Tol- seriously, Tolstoy's like, he's like, the I transcend genre. I transcend genre. <laughs> I am the most brilliant mind Russia has ever seen. Okay. Okay. It's funny. But also Sorry. like seriously, he was trying to t- undertake an artistic task here that I mean, whether it works or not is a different conversation, but I, that might help yeah. us understand or at least have some patience for in a, in a time that might be hard to have some patience for what he's doing here. This is a not necessarily a novel as we would expect it, a novel to unfold itself. That's fair. That's a good reminder. I do resent admonitions to patience on word or on page 1023 of a 1290 <laughs> page novel, but you you make a good point. I do get you it though. Yeah. Point. I think you're yeah. right. And it's timely. It's a timely reminder. It might get us through the last final push, you know, with some perspective. This novel will never end. What are you talking about? It's <laughs> never going to end. <laughs> We're never going to turn the final page of War and Peace. I, I'm starting to wonder if he's going to give us a conclusion because right. of the way that, that yes, it doesn't, the endings are not weaving together. It's, there's not a sense of finality in any character's end. And I sense that he's not going to give us a sense of finality about the big sweeping political events. I wonder if he's about conclusions. That'll be an interesting thing to see. Yeah, I don't know enough to know whether we're going to get one or not. If we don't, I'm going to go watch the last episode of the BBC miniseries and cry in my beer. (laughs) (laughs) And then go pick a shorter novel to read next time. No, so let's talk about this, though. And... You gentle listeners, we appreciate your patience in listening to us rehash this topic once again. And we promise we'll try and be efficient about it. But the four the four chapters that end part two of volume four are the walking out of what he said in the previous five chapters about the machine of war and how the people that get no credit whatsoever for the machine. The machine. <laughs> <laughs> look up look up, don't, gentle listeners. Don't do it. Okay. Yeah, don't do look it, it up. <laughs> in the show notes in the show Okay. <laughs> Content advisory warning. Okay, <laughs> content. If you don't like curse words, don't then don't go look this up. If you if that doesn't bother you quite so much in pursuit of <laughs> of just really really great comedy, go to YouTube and look up. Uh, the, here's what you type. You type the machine story, and then click in and then click on the it's picture of a Russian big mobs. fat guy with no shirt on. Okay, there will you a picture will pop up right of a big thing. fat guy with no shirt on doing stand up comedy. And he will tell you a fantastic story. And <laughs> it's about Russia. It's about the Russia. It's profane. <laughs> it's about Russia. It's profane. And it is great. And he does tell the whole story with his giant gut hanging out. It is, 
Supreme Speaking comedy. of guts hanging out, there's yes, a transition for you. That's yeah, a great segue <laughs> right there. So in this, like I've been meandering around trying to say, we, we get a... We get an application of Tolstoy's historical principle about how the people that get no house in history. No, maybe the way to put it is the historians aren't actually writing about what happened. They're spinning everything all of the time because humanity is obsessed with the idea that they are actually the captains of the ship when in fact they are not. They are just cogs in a machine and all of the combined um, accidents of the world are inexorably rolling on towards fate. And so the Napoleons of the world who believe they have something to say about the course of things are fools, as are the historians writing about them. And we have noted before the inconsistency uh, of Tolstoy himself being one of the fools writing about them while making fun of the fools writing about them. Now we get Kutuzov rolling out of bed with his big fat belly hanging out at the very last gasp of this war and trying to make good decisions in, in kind of a tight spot i do have to say i do as much as we're making fun of it all in good fun i do think that this section was easier for me to take than pretty much the rest of this part <laughs> or yeah. this, oh uh, yes yeah, this part of part two and the, there's a humanizing factor here that hasn't been necessarily apparent right throughout the rest of the section and it's good yeah we, we'll be good in a couple of places right we get konovitsin who is the who's the guy that gets the first message about Napoleon's retreat and where the troops are going. And it talks about how he doesn't sleep very much and how he's getting more and more tired all the time. But out of a sense of duty, he always leaves his door open and instructs everybody to come and get him when something important happens. And here's a diligent man who's actually after his duty, who's humbly in pursuit of Russia's good and who never gets mentioned in the history books. And Tolstoy is like, this, this is a man. (laughs) And he's almost like a little Demi Kutuzov because then the message gets to Kutuzov and we have a very similar scene happening again what do you guys make of Kutuzov's ruminations it seemed to me like the just for a broad summary's sake to remind the listeners he takes us inside Kutuzov's head and says he was thinking about everything yep right which is funny because we've been had a picture painted for us of Kutuzov as the guy who is trying to do nothing that's his whole goal I'm not going to lose any more men I'm trying not to stick my oar in I'm instead trying to manage the scenario And Tolstoy now adds the detail, by the way, this isn't because he isn't anticipating every possible eventuality, right? So pick it up from there. What did you guys, what did you guys see? Can I give a hot take? Yes. I think that that, like in this portrayal of Kutuzov, Tolstoy might be putting forward his vision of the like, say, educated man. It's not that he's different. It's not that what Tolstoy is preaching at us is supposed to change our nature he's saying that the way that humanity searches for causes and searches for meaning and tries to think about future possibilities that's like written in our nature and he's not telling us to be different the only difference with Kutuzov is instead of one or two possibilities he sees thousands Uh, he sees the world as bigger than him in a way that others like Napoleon see themselves as as the bigger one in the face of a small world. So I think, I don't know. I like that. And I can see that Tolstoy, what Tolstoy is trying to do. I mean, I don't know what other way there was for him to do it. He's trying, he's trying his best. And I don't think that there, there was a way for him to tell us his idea without coming across a bit of a fool, because he's also a part of this 
human nature. Right. The system and so he's, he's just trying to communicate something at. that's outside of us, but he's still confined to human limitations to do so. Yeah. Yeah. So to, I think that's a fantastic comment and it, um, it describes in philosophical terms what's happening literally, because here's the, here's one of the things Tolstoy runs up against. The historian's task is to take from literal events, some sort of interpretation, right. And to, to tell a story about things that actually happened without enough details to do so. And that's what Kazuzov is aiming for. He was at Borodino. He saw what he calls the fatal wound delivered and the question is, how is it going to eventually kill the French? And as you said, Emily, he's thought of thousands of variations of how this could finally come to pass. And here's what, here's what Tolstoy says about it. The one thing he was unable to foresee was the thing that happened. That's profound. We could pause on that for a while, right? The one thing that you can't actually foresee is the thing that's going to happen, <laughs> which means you can't foresee anything. That insane, convulsive rushing about of Napoleon's troops in the course of the first 11 days after leaving Moscow, a rushing about which made possible what Kutuzov did not yet dare to think of at the time, the total extermination of the French. Anyways, I bring it up because I think it's interesting that he notes the, first of all, the to see thousands of combinations of variables. I mean, that's like your world-class chess players. Kutuzov mm -hmm. is, is a brilliant and seasoned mind and a great general. Um, but even his even his foresight is, is super limited. So we have a truth about human nature. But then we also have a piece of historical analysis, don't we? The thing that actually caused the total extermination of the French was this particular insane convulsive rushing about. So like you said, Emily, he's between a rock and a hard place. I think he's making a good point that is, um, is painting up a particular issue that faces all historians. But in order to make the point, he has to do the very thing he's making fun of. And if he maybe if he didn't do it in um, eight to to nine thousand word chunks, I wouldn't be making fun of him quite as hard. It's have, trying to explain a paradox is one of the hardest things that you can do. I think. Agreed. I do sympathize with him. <laughs> yeah, one of the things that I noticed that was a comparison, I guess, between Konovitsin and um, Con no, that's another syllable in there. Is that right, Konovitsin? Konovnitsyn. Now there's an N. There it is. The comparison between Konovnitsyn and Kutuzov seems to be that neither of them is taking up their reins and and uh, pronouncing a judgment on how the events have gone. Um, there's a line that says, whether it was good or bad, Konovnitsyn did not consider or ask himself. That did not interest him. He looked at the whole business of war, not with his mind, not with his reason, but with something else. There was a deep unspoken conviction in his soul that all would be well, but that it was not to be believed, still less spoken about, and that he had only to do his duty. And this duty of his he did, giving all his forces to it. That is exactly what I would say about Kutuzov through this whole book, that he has been guiding Russia and all of his troops with this something else. Not reason, not what a what was the other thing? Not his mind, not his reason, but with this something else, this Russian soul. And he has called out that Russian soul from his people multiple times. It's this emotional gut level sense of duty and the motherland that has been driving him all along. And I think one thing I found humanizing, like you guys have been saying, about this particular selection is the juxtaposition of those two characters. One who's just 
nameless, basically. He's going to be lost to time. But he was important to the beating heart of Russia in this moment. And I think Tolstoy might be saying Kutuzov is just as unimportant and just as important all at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're right about that. So that might be the paradox that you guys are batting around. Yeah, Megan, that's really well put. And and I think it's interesting that you talk about the habit that we see from, and I can't do his name. Mm-hmm. You just did it. What is it? Konovnitsyn. Konovnitsyn. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just, you just got to like, you know, like <laughs> settle into it, you know? So that, yeah, the, this kind of habit that you're seeing and that, that Tolstoy is elevating in him is reflected in this passage about Kutuzov. And it's to put a little bit differently, I think, because of the attitude of command and the, the weight that he's carrying. But it basically says he's not thinking with his, he's not doing it with his brain either. The more he desired it, the less he allowed himself to believe it. It occupied all of his inner forces, but the rest for him was the habitual acting out of life. Yeah. And we might say life is duty, is duty yeah. for Kutuzov, right? So yeah, I think you're right to notice the comparison between the two of those. And it makes the, the rest of this chapter really pretty. Well, there's one more uh, thought that I had about Kutuzov there. It's not just this habit and this duty. It's also acknowledged by Tolstoy in this moment that he is more mature in this habit than anyone else that mm, we've experienced. Yeah. It is the quality of an old man to be comfortable just sitting in his duty without pronouncing a judgment. And I think that if we go back to the idea of the soul of Russia, it's, um, it's steeped in tradition and uh, patience and emotion and then religion. All those things together have made up the heart of Russia. And I think that the ending of this chapter, which I know that Emily wants to talk about, kind of ties in that last little element of the true heart of Russia, that religious element that Kutuzov so embodies. Yeah, no, I think that's really well said. I just think the ending of this chapter is gorgeous. It, I think it puts a, a really beautiful pin in what Tolstoy is trying to tell us and maybe does better than anything thus far, in my humble opinion. The fact that Kutuzov hears the news that Napoleon has abandoned Moscow, actually, and his response is to, uh, let's see, He wanted to say something, but suddenly his face shriveled, wrinkled. Waving his hand at Toll, he turned the other way to the corner of the room with its blackened icons. They're blackened, which means they're in great use, right? Lord, my creator, thou hast heeded our prayer, he said in a trembling voice, clasping his hands. Russia is saved. I thank thank thee, Lord. And he wept. The fact that this is his response shows us how dependent he has known himself to be thus far. And it reminded me, I was actually digging around in the other half of the book recently to do a little writing. Um, and I remembered this scene from Pierre way back early on when he was just starting out in his masonry. And uh, he's writing in his journal and he writes, if I myself am the cause of the bad things, then teach me what to do. I will perish of my own depravity if thou forsakest me altogether. I don't know. I, those two seemed, it seems connected to me. And I think that Kutuzov might be our historical and maybe matured Pierre. I love that. That there's a recognition of a need. And he's, as you said so beautifully, sitting in his duty because he knows that's the only thing that he can do is what little he can hmm. um, in his little world. And then when the big pieces fall into place, uh, he he knows where that came from. 
he, he knows how dependent he was in that process and what a miracle it is that it has turned out well. Yeah. Do you guys think there's any significance to the end of that scene being just a three line and he wept? It reminded me of mm. the two line oh, Jesus, well, wept. Jesus wept. Yeah. I don't I know if it that translates that way it, yes. in the Russian, but in translation to English anyway, it's it was amazing how direct, you know? I'm going to play the gadfly for a second, and All I right. want to issue a, di- a disclaimer. I don't think this. I just think it could be thought. And what would you say to it? Okay? That's the tack we're taking. So all the things that you just said about about Kutuzov being an image of mature Pierre, therefore being one of the messages of the novel that Tolstoy is trying to give us about a proper posture towards the world and towards the course of history, etc., makes me wonder what we're supposed to do with his characterization of the French army and the reasons for their defeat. Because he goes out of his way to say, the French army carried within itself the conditions for its own destruction. There was nothing that could have saved them. So either, and this would be fine, either God is with Russia, and so there's nothing that can save the French. Except for he's been very clear that we're not right. supposed to think that. Yeah. Right. That would be somewhat short of the high standard he's set for himself as a historian. Or... He's saying, look at how beautiful it is when when providence directs things, also fate. So maybe Christians deal with providence and Frenchmen deal with fate. I couldn't get away from, even in that sentence that you just read, the immediate turn to the, the French made the wrong choices. I mean, the next sentence mm-hmm. reads, why should this army, which found abundant provisions in Moscow and could not keep them, but trampled them underfoot, this army, which on coming to Smolensk did not distribute provisions, but looted them. Why should this army have been able to set itself to rights in Kaluga province, populated by the same Russians as in Moscow and where fire had the same property of burning up what was set aflame? In other words, so sarcastic. Yeah, so sarcastic. And I mean, maybe I'm misreading it, but these French guys wouldn't know, you know, something from a hole in the ground. It's what it feels like he's saying. They make all the wrong choices every time, and so they will again. That's what's inherent to them is bad choices. Am I reading it's that wrong? It's their Frenchness. He's a racist. It's their Frenchness. What do you think, Emily? Emily? I know that I'm reading yeah. it wrong. <laughs> what, both of us are, t- are off on wild-headed tangents. What, what's, the, what's really going on here? Well, my guess is when you think about the historical context of this time period, think about Pierre from the very beginning. Pierre admired Napoleon as a hero because he was so intelligent. And that is the characterization of the time. And I I mean, has continued uh, of the way that we perceive Napoleon and his French. They were intellectuals. They were worldly and wise they were bringing supposedly democracy and independence wherever they went. Like they were admired. And so he's not beaten down on the French. I don't think as much as he is showing us if they were so intelligent, if Napoleon was so smart. And I do think that, I do think that Tolstoy thinks Napoleon is smart and has shown some respect for him along the way. Yeah, I'd agree with that. That um, what he's trying to say is, so then how do you explain this? There's no reason that someone so intelligent should choose to not provide for themselves the basic human necessity. Why aren't they going where the supplies are? So it serves to back up his point about human nature, which is that we don't have foresight. Or that, I mean, in the multiplicity of causes, reason doesn't seem to be the ruling factor here. They want to go home. Right. Is basically what he told us. They're being drawn towards home as quickly as possible. And right. I mean, 
you've been there, right? Like when it's time to go home from a trip and you're just, you know, you really kind of have to go to the bathroom, but you're just going to hold it because you just need to go home. <laughs> yes. You know, <laughs> I think it's a very human thing that he's describing here. Yeah. So. I agree with that. Well, our our selection for the day ends with Kutuzov exerting his whole will to avoid an engagement because he, among all of the Russians, is the only one who understands that the French are bound for destruction with no help, right? They don't, they don't need any help destroying themselves. They just will. And so what we need to do is avoid getting more of our men slaughtered and avoid ruining more countryside and avoid blasting our commoners with war and et cetera. So he, he does whatever he can to make sure that doesn't happen. Can't stop his young firebrand officers from trying to cut off portions of the French army and overrun them and all that sort of thing. And, and Tolstoy sums it up with, as for cutting off, they cut off and overran nobody. And the French army, having drawn up more tightly in the face of danger, continued melting away regularly along their same fatal path to Smolensk. Yeah, he uses that word melting away. He says a third of the army would melt away without any battle at all. Just from yeah. privations, etc. That's an amazing statistic. And it is a little bit like a snowball. Is that what you guys were saying before? That it's like a snowball image? It's rolling away but melting as it goes? Yeah, he says at one point, it is impossible to melt a ball of snow instantly. There exists a certain time limit before which no efforts at heating can melt the snow. On the contrary, the greater the heat, the more solid the remaining snow becomes. This literally happened to us a couple weeks ago. It snowed a lot and then it got warm and it turned to ice and there was nothing we could do. We were stuck with a solid sheet of ice on our driveway and everyone who came to visit us almost fell down. They were, they were taking their lives <laughs> in their hands. As someone who came to visit you, everyone <laughs> fell down. At one, point, at one point I came home from some, or no, you came home from something. I had been here. You came home from something and you came in the room and I was like, hey, how's it going? And you said something mean to me and stormed <laughs> off. And it turns out... That what had happened was you had nearly died on the driveway and you were just so mad at God and everyone. You had no time to talk to me right then. It was really funny. You told me the next day you were like, I had, I fell down leaving our house and then I fell down coming back to our house. It was, was too like, many. Oh, that's what it was. Anyway, I have immediate context for the idea that applying heat to Makes snow, it worse. It makes it worse before it's better. I mean, yeah. it does eventually become better. But I think what Tolstoy is saying here is that God is applying the heat. And the Russians didn't really need to. Spring is coming. Spring will come. Well, you guys, I know this hasn't been a very long episode, but I do think we've taken up everything Tolstoy offers us in this in this shortened section. And so get, go ahead and read the first five chapters of that next part, and, and we'll see you guys next time around on How to Eat an Elephant, where we are continuing to chew. And here's hoping. Sorry. I didn't know you were going so fast. I said, here's hoping that we hear a character's name that we recognize in the next section. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure he's diving off the deep end into philosophy again, and I just can't even. I see yeah. Denisov. Where is go. Natasha? Yeah, where the heck Call me is crazy, Natasha? but i into her. I, well, I, I want like, more Natasha. She lost Andre, finally, and then we basically haven't seen her since for like 100 pages. <laughs> it's been a long time. Tolstoy's priorities, seriously out of whack. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, you guys, continue strengthening your jaws. And I will see you all next time for more chewing <laughs> on how to eat an elephant. Bon appetit. <laughs> bon appetit. Bon appetit. Bon 
Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.